I'm Dustin Zahn, and this is Trainwrex. This week's guest is another legend. He goes by the name of Douglas McCarthy, who happens to be one-third of the infamous EBM group, Knights of Reb. Note that I said EBM as in electric body music, and not EDM as in the trash that your coworker listens to. Douglas and the band were highly influential to dance music. Their songs like Join in the Chant or Let Your Body Learn are still played on a regular basis by legendary house and techno DJs alike. In fact, it wasn't until our chat that I didn't realize how closely connected he was to our music and the people that are still making it happen today. And I guess that would be partly in thanks to living in Detroit for a while when techno was popping off. Uh, he'll talk about that a little bit more later in the show. Um, but Douglas's story truly took off around 1987 to 1988 with the release of Knights of Reb's album entitled That Total Age. So to put it into perspective, sit back and let this sink in. Ronald Reagan was president. Crack cocaine was introduced to the cities by the CIA. And the movie Cocktail was a major box office success. Which, by the way, Cocktail was a bullshit movie. If you're not aware of it, it's a movie that stars Tom Cruise in his peak as a Manhattan bartender. And he doesn't get laid until like 16 minutes into the movie. I mean, let's be honest here. We're talking about Tom Cruise in 1988. He could have done it in four minutes. If that's not enough, the story ships off Tom Cruise to frickin' Jamaica for part of the movie to be a bartender. And let me tell you, that's kind of a stretch. I've been to Jamaica, and you can go across the whole goddamn island, and it's nearly impossible to find a lime for your drink. <sighs> I do love me some Elizabeth Shue, though. I think she might have been my first uh, uh, like Hollywood uh, crush or something like that. Anyway, back to Knights of Reb. While all this was going on in the States, they hit the road with Depeche Mode, uh, during their peak as an opening act. This kind of catapulted them into the big leagues, which meant major record labels, big studios, lawsuits, parties, and everything else that comes with rock and roll. Uh, nothing lasts, though. Knights Arab went on in a definite hiatus, and Douglas left the music industry. A short time later, our good friend Terrence Fixmer got in touch with McCarthy about doing some music together. Uh... The result was a number of releases and, uh, I don't know, three or four tours along the way, if I'm not mistaken, one of which is uh, currently underway here in Europe, where they're touring, um, I don't remember what the name of the new release is, but Douglas brings it up in the show. Anyway, I intended to have him on the episode with Terrence before their Burkine gig, but it didn't quite work out in time. The good news is, is along the way, I learned they're both really interesting guys that have a lot of history to them, and they deserve their own episode. So I really enjoyed this talk with him, and I'm sure that it won't be the last time he's on the show. Another quick thing is, um, some of you have seen him, some of them and not, but uh, if you get a chance, check him out. You can't deny his stage presence. He has this perfect amount of confidence, experience, and ability that can only come with decades of being a front man. Uh, it's like full-on rock and roll, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just not something you see coming out of, of front men these days, so he's he's a classic for sure. Anyway, enjoy the show. All right, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. It's kind of a 
kind of a crazy thing because we were just talking and I said, I better hit record. You said, where am I from? And I uh, yeah, actually, I grew up in a little town named Ironwood, which is an hour from where he did the Further Festival back in I, August. I kind of remembered passing something that said that. Yeah. And uh, I spent, uh, when I was 19, I moved to Minneapolis. Spent Big city lights. Uh, yeah. About 10 years there. And then I've been in Berlin for a while now. So uh, that's my story. That's good. Yeah. That's not a bad story from up there that far north. I mean, it, that weekend for the, the even further was, I guess it's traditional that the further events are just showered in rain and mud. It's, yeah. It's never really been a smooth <laughs> ride and it's always like in the middle of nowhere. So you get a really bizarre group of people. Sounds like the story of my life. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's get into it a little bit. Um, we're just going to bullshit about whatever, but yeah. for those of you who don't know, we'll do a quick crash course on everything. And uh, I forgot to mention before we started the show, if you see me writing down notes on my phone or whatever, I'm just doing my job. I'm not bored. You're just texting. Yeah. I'm like, God, this guy's got to get the fuck out of my house already. In fact, you're actually sexting. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's later, after these drinks. But, um, yeah, so... I guess the the main thing that you're known for is being the frontman of uh, Nights of Rab. Yeah. And uh, was it, I mean, the first album came in 87, I think, right? Yeah. We we, we started, I mean, if you want me to give you the brief. Yeah, let's just the, do a brief one. Because some people have no clue. It's more of a techno show, you know? Yeah. So, um, I, uh, teenage kids growing up in Essex in this kind of shitty town 20 miles outside of london mm-hmm. um called chelmsford we were skaters okay. and, and got into music kind of at the same time that we were you know is that how time? it goes yeah, yeah. you're just yeah skating around listening yeah to skating it. around listening to tunes and then we started to go to shows and we were just like yeah we want to do this but mm-hmm. we didn't want to use guitars um, we really got into kind of actually a lot of the German influence of like DAF, like the first DAF album. And okay, that's what I was going to ask about. Yeah, which was originally on mute, and you know we and you know other bands as well that were kind of in the. I mean, Kraftwerk like to a certain, yeah, Neubauten like came later actually, okay. but uh, in fact, but that's actually an interesting story that in itself that we like the so the point we'd already started a band and we'd. You know, like a lot of teenagers, we just rehearsed a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't actually want to do shows because that would be too scary. <laughs> and then we saw this show. Um, I think it was the first time Neubauten had played in London, but it was the lineup was Malaria, Neubauten, and the birthday party. When was this roughly? 82, 83. Okay. And uh, we'd already released a tape, I guess, around that time, 82, 83. But we saw that show and it just kind of like, made, we were like, ah, that's what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> like yeah. just the energy and just bring the, you know, bring the menace to the stage and be like control it rather than be like we before that we, I mean, we were definitely kind of angry, angry young men, but we didn't know that how to just like use that as a performance. Yeah. So that kind of changed everything. And yeah, we we released um, some records on our what we thought was our own label. The eventual lawsuit turns out it wasn't our label. <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh, but then we signed. So we started. I did a, the first show I did. I was like fifteen, mm. literally wow. fifteen okay. years old. Yeah, 
and that was that I couldn't actually move. I was holding the mic and was just so frightened being on stage. And then the Neubauten thing happened probably, I guess, I don't know. Anyway, we we signed quite in a quick succession. We signed to Mute Records in 86. Yep. And then uh, Geffen Records, I think the following year. And then suddenly we like had, you know, record wow. companies and tours. And we were, and I think the following year after that, we reluctantly went on tour. So 88, we went on tour with Depeche Mode for their Music for the Masses tour in Europe. Mm-hmm. And we actually we said we said point blank that we wouldn't do it because that was pop music and you you were just wanting to be defiant, <laughs> yeah, just stupid, just young and stupid, just be, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it. I can imagine there's a million crazy things that happened over that period and <laughs> the ups and downs and the excitement and stuff like that. Because I mean, it's pretty crazy to go from having a band um, and relatively quickly getting signed and you know what i mean we basically yeah so from this we started the band or started performing the band and within two years we had a had really we're releasing a record by ourselves mm-hmm. and then within another two years we were assigned to two huge labels and um and we're touring you know so i basically i quit art school didn't tell my parents that i'd quit art school for about six months and was just like going off and Doing, doing shows and stuff. So what happened when you finally were like, uh, so this is what I've been up to? They were they were really disappointed, actually. <laughs> yeah. Despite the success. they Once they started to realize that, oh, there's, I mean, like I moved out and kind of, you know, I mean, I was a kid, I was 19. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I think I moved out when I was probably when I was 20. And then my girlfriend at the time got pregnant almost immediately. So I was suddenly like, the perfect world of being a young kid, not knowing what the fuck I'm doing, <laughs> touring the world. That was a short-lived moment. With a kid at home. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, so there's a lot of, like, steep learning curves, but, yeah, you. I mean, Bon and I have talked about it, Bon, the other guy in Night's Rep, have talked about it, that there, in some ways there's there was this, there was that period of time that we, obviously it was great. Mm-hmm to do what we were doing but we kind of missed out on that transition period of being a you know a kid into an adult we were just suddenly like it's you're thrown into an adult world real quick yeah yeah and we didn't cope very well (laughs) Uh, no (laughs) a little bit of learning i mean you know i had um the i guess the success on mine has been a bit has been always steady and gradual it hasn't been an overnight thing but Definitely had some more early on than maybe you would at that young of an age. And it definitely throws a lot more uh, coming-of-age moments yeah. at you a lot quicker than probably you should experience. But, I mean, you kind of get things. You kind of get things backwards, I think. That's the thing. It's like years later, you're like, oh, wait. Yeah. That's the way people are supposed to do things. How are I supposed to think about it? How old were you then? What happened with you? You came I mean, from... I, I put on my first record in 2000. One or two, I think, which puts me at about 18. And, I mean, it wasn't like I was touring the world or anything, but uh, I toured the States around with uh, with my uh, buddy Ian. I think you maybe met him in at Further. Uh, we were going around and playing raves and parties and bars and shit like that for a while, and then I ended up going to Europe and, and playing there a bit too. But um, it sounds... Pretty familiar. I mean, it's not yeah, that far away. But, uh, I mean, the age difference is. I mean, by the time that I was 
out on the road is probably about the same age. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is like, um, so while it was definitely on a smaller scale, what I've noticed now is as I'm a bit older and I'm seeing these other young kids starting to play, especially like back then it was, um, you know, we didn't have Ableton and all these home studios and shit. So now like people have been producing for two years and they're thrown onto this international festival circuit and stuff. And I see these guys that are like 22 or 23 and they're such little shitheads. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying that I was uh, great. But I was definitely better than a lot of these guys, you know. And I mean, attitude-wise, you mean? Yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, of course, I think every young guy is going to be a little cocky at a certain we, age. I but, mean, you should be. That's all. That's the yeah. That's the fun part of it is that you're doing stupid stuff. You're, you mm-hmm. know, drinking too much, doing too many bad things, yeah. and really just walking away from every bad situation. Fine, because you're just moving on to the next city, and it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm a teenager. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I don't really have a problem with people getting making bad choices and stuff like that. But you know, like the stage manager, you'll be at the festival and you you have this young guy and you're just fucking screaming at them because they don't yeah, have I don't know an IPA that they asked for or something. And it's just like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Seen like, too many Richie Horton YouTube videos. Probably. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, the thing is, is like, you know, there's I think there's a point to just really. I don't want to say be an asshole, but kind of have fun with it and know like, okay, you're not, you can't be a rock star hundred percent of the day. A lot of people like to think so. I'm sure you've met some interesting types over the years. There's been a, there's been a handful. Yeah. Yeah. Of people for sure. I mean, not least myself over the years. I definitely was a complete dick for, well, depending on who you talk to, that may be as well. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely long periods of time of being a complete and utter dick. Well, it'll happen. Yeah. But I mean, so, you know, at that period, you say you're like, what, early 20s, mid 20s, something like that. So by the time, like by the time we'd released our first album um, on Mute and Geffen, um, I think I was 21 or 22. No, because we were doing the second album when I was 22, because that's when my daughter was born. So, Okay. And uh, so the... Was the first album or second album total age? I can't remember. First album is total age. Okay. That's, that's just like the raw kind of like three dudes in a studio not mm-hmm. knowing what we're doing, like fighting with the producer constantly. We'd, we'd um, By the time we'd got to kind of write that album, which, you know, again, it's like the you know in the business of writing entire albums, the first album is just is your history up until that point. <laughs> like, yeah. Whatever you've done. I mean, you kick out a few songs that you don't want to have in there, but you basically that's you forming the band definitely up until that point. So uh, we'd managed to uh, like I was still at high school, so I saved um, my lunch money. Yeah, um, and then my dad, my mum and dad kicked in um, to help. We basically we were saving up at the time. We were saving up for a Pro One because it had a sequencer in it. And yeah. then uh, Roland did, uh, so that's sequential circuits, in case people don't know. Yeah. Um, and so then synthesizer. Synthesizer yes. stuff. <laughs> and then uh, then Roland released the SH-101, which was like a third of the price. Mm-hmm. So because we were dumb kids, we thought we also needed a, a like a keyboard amplifier, which... Roland did for about the same price as the synth. So instead of buying two synths, we bought a synth and then an amplifier, keyboard amplifier, Cube 60, 
Um, anyway, so we once we'd got that, we had sequencing because before that we didn't have a sequencer. Okay, and then so and then the drums. I mean, it sounds like just you were using a rock kit mic'd up, right? It was actually what we used was um, um, it was another uh, skate friend of ours, Dave Gooday, and um, he wasn't a drummer whatsoever, so. We used a, like a floor tom and a snare, mm-hmm. and then just that was it. And wow! Then, yeah, and then a cymbal on there as Keep well. Keep it in simple. Yeah, you just stood up and played drums. You know. So I mean, it's it's really interesting because like a lot of the people that we have on the show are more like techno and house guys, where they'll have a studio or they borrow someone's studio. But it's a lot different when you're working in more of a a band background like first of all people don't realize like when they see in the movies like the band work in the studio or spinal tap like you're paying for everything the studio time oh, the yeah. waters you drink all that yeah the producer's time oh, and it's a it's really a racket i can't it's, even imagine the back then as well like once we actually finally did get like the so the first album we did we basically and i do mean we paid for it um then it got signed so it's licensed actually to mute and mm-hmm. then to get in so then we started getting like these like you know advances back then uh, you'd get good money yeah serious like this was like a band you know, literally kind of like teenage kids out of nowhere and i think the advance for geffing for the first album was 75 grand just like it's incredible <laughs> you go boys make a record and it's it incredible. doubled every time we made a record then it would just go up and up mm-hmm. so we did in the end you like and you know obviously hindsight is everybody's best friend. Of course. But what we should have been doing was just like, all right, you're giving us... I mean, at the point where they were giving us hundreds of thousands of dollars, we should have said, let's build a studio. Let's buy a, a building, which you easily yeah. could have done back then, in like a shitty part of LA or mm-hmm. shitty part of New York, wherever. And yeah, build a studio. We did not do that. <laughs> no, I mean, that never happens. Like, And you always like... Uh, you always talk to people and um they end up blowing it or like they want to go to somewhere cool like i mean yeah. abbey road is really expensive obviously but you know like if you got a big budget you're like fuck it we're gonna master there or yeah, something yeah, and exactly uh that kind of crap and uh there's a couple guys that are you know djs now and they're really spending a lot of money that they're making on the road and investing it into a studio which uh traditionally is the right way to go i don't know if it's really gonna be worth it down the road financially but at least you have this at your disposal you have this i think you have this like bricks and mortar thing that is Uh, yours and you know so what we you know i mean back then um 75 grand didn't actually go that far it doesn't go far these days either (laughs) i mean it was a lot more money back then i mean we're Uh, talking like 25 years ago but um studios were like two and a half grand a day and then on top of that, you're paying wages to the producer, yep. your percentage to the producer, like all this stuff. And, you know, and you're just kids and being told, yeah, this is cool. This is the way we do it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it's it's got to be exciting to uh, – because, I mean, I think the thing that I miss with, uh, you know, like the CD format going away and magazines and all this shit and MTV and whatnot is that there's this kind of – you know this sense that like you've made it this is the big leagues there's a drama right. and excitement to everything whether it's all bullshit or not is irrelevant <laughs> like it gives somebody to work something towards you know and like nowadays with all those kind of big avenues that have you know they're gone 
It well, seems... I mean, it's what it, it, it like the. I mean, in the techno world, it, I guess you know the big league is you know sharing your private jet with people. Well, yeah, but then it just comes down <laughs> to like having shit to post on Instagram, exactly. and then um, you know what festivals you're doing and stuff. And don't yeah. get me wrong; those are cool things. No, it's all cool. But, and I, you know, the people we're talking about, and I, I know you know the people that we're talking about. They're people that I know. They're friends, and they're probably friends of yours, and they're. They're cool, they're cool people, but it's just like, do I really need to see another post of you drinking sake or champagne on a private jet? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will gladly do those things on a private jet, no questions <laughs> no asked. No problem, no problem. But, uh, you know, I, I get what you're saying, but I mean, and yeah, just for me, it's kind of, uh, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, and I think that's definitely more prominent just in dance music culture, is a little bit of like this... Um, high profile mm. lifestyle thing whereas you're not seeing that as much with like rock music for example it's a little bit it's a lot more low-key what is so the, i mean the thing the thing about it ultimately as well is that in amongst all of this nonsense and spending all this money that you end up owning the record company like that took a while to realize <laughs> yeah that's true too you know like it all comes out of your pocket <laughs> yeah but what happened was that we got to work with uh, you know some true masters and you know flood being what was that like oh man a guy like he changed literally ripped up our stupid brash naive childish rule book and told us how to make a record that you want to make it was pretty incredible. Uh, i mean that you know there's uh when it comes down to producers for those who don't know flood is like kind of a legendary producer he's done ton of bands and elms you've heard his music um the odds are you probably like some of it too if if you're kind of in that world but um you know there's these guys that have a grasp that you know like people will give shit to today's producers whether it's going to be like kanye west or something not my kind of thing but mm. these are people that have a grasp of a variety of things and they see it differently than yeah. the average producer it's not just throwing a guitar on a track and overdriving it a bit like there's all these nuances that people can't pick up on. And these, just watching these guys work, it's incredible. Well, he makes you... The thing with Flood is that he makes you... And this is true of any successful producer that isn't a complete asshole. And there's most of them that are that latter char character characterization. But um, Flood, Flood would just... You know, he taught us to dig really deep, like this could be better mm -hmm. maybe it couldn't but this you know the idea that this could be better it's potentially possible yeah so then why not try it make it better so that sound you've got coming out of that oberheim expander mm -hmm. we could do better than that that lyric that you've got we could do better than that the performance you just did we could do better than that and then yeah there comes a point where you're like uh nope apparently we can't <laughs> yeah but you give it a shot anyway yeah at two thousand bucks a day yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I mean, uh, so which which album did you work with Flood on then? So we worked from, um, uh, so the first album was Total Age, which we did um, ourselves with um, actually a UK engineer um, uh, called Phil Hardin that okay. did, he did a lot of the, uh, I'm familiar with any of it, but the uh, PWL 
label, which was, uh, you know, like uh, Dead or Alive, You Turn Me Round. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then like Mel and Kim, all these, and Pet Shop Boys. Yeah. So he, he was basically the house engineer at PWL. Okay. In London. And he and his partner who had a publishing company um, went into partnership with us to do a record label called Power Voice Communications and that's how we started releasing stuff. Um, so Phil Harding um, did the first album and then from then on we parted company and then on we worked with Flood for the second, third and fourth album. Okay, so, so quite a bit then. Quite a bit, yeah. And then we were, you know, instrumental in getting Flood to work with Depeche Mode. They were doing, they happened to be doing, there was a live album they did. Um, it was called 101, which was their tour, the Music for the Masses tour in the US in 88. And uh, they happened to be doing like the overdubs and, you know, live albums aren't yeah. really live. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so they were doing the overdubs in the same studio as us and then we introduced them to Flood. Flood had been knocking around mute for a long time. He'd done, he'd worked with Erasure, he'd worked with um, with Nick Cave, mm. all of the early Nick Cave and the Bad yeah. Seed stuff. Before that, he'd worked with Daniel doing like, like the very first soft cell release memorabilia was yeah. Flood and Daniel Miller. Like this kind of, you know, it's legendary kind of trajectory from... Like any music that, like you kind of said, any music you well, think, I think you he might did, like. He did at least one of the U2 albums, I he believe, did, right? uh, I can't remember which one, but it was a couple, later I'd, stuff. He did a, He engineered, he was the engineer on Joshua Tree. Mm-hmm. And then uh, with the, the last album that we did with him, um, which was a very long, protracted event <clears throat> that went on for like two and a half years. We ended up in Los Angeles and had like done the thing that you did back then. It was the early nineties, so we rented a house and built a studio in it. You know, um, yeah, you're living there now. Is yeah, that, is that when you moved then? I was going to ask. I, that's that when later. I first moved there. Okay, yeah, that's when I first so, moved so you're there. So living there then? Yeah, and then living there then, and then moved back to Europe for a bit. Well, via Detroit. But okay. Anyway. And then um, he was so flood was working with us on that, and then he was like, "Yeah, I've got a." a, a like you two want to do an EP. So I'm going to go to Dublin for two weeks. And then like six months later, he came back. Wow. <laughs> and they're done. They're done. Zeropa. Yeah. Okay. That's crazy. I mean, um, there's another guy I can't, and it's actually related to another similar band that we were just talking about. I don't think I can bring up who it is, but it was another one of those deals. He just kind of got roped into a deal. And then all of a sudden he was gone for a while working on shit. And yeah. You know, it's the next project for this. But there were some, there were some funny stories from uh, from that project. I think it was that one rather than Zeropa, rather than yeah, it's that one rather than Joshua Tree. But yeah, just you know, Brian Eno stories that are hilarious. I think some of them are broadcastable. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you're welcome, you're welcome to share. If not, it's all good. But so basically, so Flood would be in the studio in Dublin all week with the band. Mm-hmm. And then there was a big like whiteboard, like a lot of people do, a yeah. big whiteboard at the back of the studio, and you'd have the tracks and the notes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then um, Eno would come in on a Friday night after, like he'd have to he'd wait until the band had left. Mm-hmm. He'd come in, 
and then um, the tracks he didn't like, he'd just cross them out. And then the tracks he liked, he'd put a swastika next to. Him. Oh, God. <laughs> but then would spend all night talking with Flood about how to develop yeah. them and stuff. But yeah, it's yeah. I mean, it's it's the the, the whole world is pretty interesting. Uh, you know, regarding the whole producer thing, because a lot of people, you know, like for example, in dance music. You have one or two guys that make the record, but when it comes for a uh, time for a band, of course a band is gonna have their own sound. But it really, I think records are crucial depending on the producer. I really, you know? I totally agree with you, and I think that bands miss a step um, from being so like adaptable as uh, or so kind of hands on as dance music mm-hmm. producers or, or or musicians, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But then I think the reverse is true as well, that um, that dance music um, creators or producers, like ba- basically it's kind of interesting having this other level that you go to where someone, and you may disagree, but there's a lot of interaction and there's a lot of conversation and the, like creative discourse happens at that level. It's with like, a band, you mean? With a, no, with like, so if you're producing your record in, you know, in the box at mm-hmm. home, yeah. maybe you've got some modular gear or whatever, you're producing it all, you finish it and you think it's, that's it, it's perfect. I think that it's, it's actually a positive thing to, to then take that to someone else to have another opinion, another level of, of discourse, of, of creative discourse on it. You mean like having a producer kind of do a different mix down or something? Or something, just yeah. Just, just Yeah, maybe it's, I mean, it's like even, it can be just like an engineer even, you know, but like there's, there's just something, I just know that when, you know, with, you say with Terrence, for instance, what we yeah. did, what we've done with, with both the, I mean, you've only made two albums, but with both albums, we then took them, to an actual someone else's studio and had them, you know, like fine-tuned stuff that we were maybe like missing or didn't hear yeah. because we're so used to it. And then just little, just different things that happen. Um, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a, it's an important part of the, I wouldn't say curatorial process, but um, just a, just the, the the overall sound of what you're trying to do, because that's that's the th- that's basically what a producer does is make this overall vibe. Of totally, what you're trying to like do. it's kind of like lose it all together. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and um, otherwise it can sound disheveled. Like, and I I never really understood. Like, for example, um, a lot of bands they'll have, or even hip hop. It doesn't matter. Whoever needs a producer, you know, collaborative uh, group. They'll have like let's say a successful or a milestone type album, and then the next one, they'll switch up producers, and the album fucking sucks. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, and I'm just like, dude, this last album was a shoe in. I'd be like, if it was Rick Rubin, be like, Rubin's gonna be on the next album, and if Rubin, also as well, probably. I don't know. <laughs> I want to hear stories though, but and if that's the case, on the then make sure he's on the next one. You know what yeah, I'm saying? And I wait mean, till he can. I don't know. Or else, or else, find someone that ha- you know, like someone who's up and coming or whatever. I mean, that's the th- the thing. Like I say, the thing with Flood was that we were cocksure little brats, mm-hmm. and he, yeah, he really made us rethink how we want to make music, what kind of music we want to make, and just showed us a bunch of techniques. Obviously, things are different now because 
you you can just sit in front of Ableton or uh, whatever program you've got and try out a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. But there is a there is a process and there is a kind of methodology to it that is is it's really positive to get shown that by someone. I think I don't know. definitely. I am fifty, so yeah. Well, I mean that's let okay. So being fifty, you've been in the industry for 30 years yeah. off and on um obviously the music industry is a lot different now and i guess there's pros and cons about the past and today but like do you still have a pretty positive outlook of how today is or not really yeah i do i mean i um you know i uh, i i did a solo record um a couple of years ago um and that's actually how i ended up um working with quite a few people that are now kind of part of the the project the new project i have but um i did you know i i i wrote that album actually on machine i wrote it on machine at home and like did everything by okay. myself and that was you know that 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 is it's a liberating thing and i can totally understand how liberating it is for everyone the idea that that is as i say back to this thing the advice from flood the idea that that is the best it can be just mm-hmm. because I've managed to do it doesn't mean that it is the best it can be, you know? Sure. But I mean, the, the, there's a, the thing is you also have to know when to stop yourself too. Like for uh, example, there's tracks when you, you, you work on music too long and you just overcook it. It no longer yeah. has that initial raw feeling that you had in the first 15 minutes yep. of starting that loop or coming up with that lyric or something. And that, that the, the interesting thing about that comment, actually dustin is that that is that that is the the that's the story of trying to do an album or trying to do a track like you're constantly riding that thin line between um like you say overcooking it over egging yep. goddamn mix or just just losing your way like yeah. and there's there's times you know there's times everybody does this this is the whole it's kind of the beauty of making music you you just you keep going with something and then you realize that you're in a dead end this is actually yeah. crap and the thing you had 4 days ago <laughs> what's yeah, where exactly i i think what it comes down to is just it comes with experience some people yep. can pick up on that sooner it's it's like being in a relationship sometimes you got to know when to just smile and agree yeah. and other times yeah, you got to know when to be mouth. like yeah <laughs> all right chill out you know yeah. what i mean and yeah. uh the reality is, is you're gonna mess it up at some point. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you just kind of got to go with it. But with time, you start to realize like what is acceptable, what isn't, or you know, there, where you I push t- totally up. agree with you. Totally agree with you. And then the other, you know, the good thing is that like we'd be, you know, back in the day. I mean, I sound like fucking grandpa over here, but back in the day, like we're burning through two inch tape, you know, which was not a cheap thing to do. Yeah. Now you can just like I with my iPhone I can actually record and record and record as much as I want like more mm-hmm. than I want. So yeah, that I think that that there's there's again it's it's the same thing that it's the same problem that was always there as far as I've known in in 30 years of doing music. Um the the difference now is that you can have um, so much um, almost it, too much I too think. much well this is the other thing like that's what like so the project i'm doing in la actually with bomb 
and uh, Cyrus Rex, uh, uh, Basic, kind of you know Basic, yep. yeah. So, so we've got this project called Black Lion, and we've been very kind of calmly steady. Like we'll go in the studio a couple of days a week, mm-hmm. and it's been a year, and we've got thirty five tracks, and it's like most of those tracks are, are just like stepping stones to the track that's going to be good. So we've maybe got like five tracks that are good. Yeah. That's worth mentioning though, because I'm in the same boat. I've yeah. got, I'm like at any given time, I'm always sitting on three to 4,000, thousand dozen tracks. <laughs> Jesus. Thousand loops. But, um, yeah, it doesn't mean they're all good. No, I probably got a decent record out of them. Exactly. That's, you know? but that's, that's, it definitely is worth mentioning that like, yeah. And then we all sit down and we just like every, like we just did it because I, I, I came over here to do, you know, this kind of like little tour with Terrence and uh, decided to, I mean, the way things are now, it's definitely, it's a weekend gig mm-hmm. rather than like what we used to be able to do, even with me and Terrence. And yeah, you could do like bump around Europe for a few weeks and have everything done in like three weeks. But yeah. now it's like seven weeks because you're playing the weekends. Club gigs. Yeah. Um, but before I left, then that was one thing that we did. We all sat down in back in LA, Bond, Cyrus, and 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 Derek, basic, and we just sat down and we we're just like yay or nay, yeah. And and it's a really it's kind of cathartic that you just like there's a I'm leaving, so we need to work on some more tracks. Mm-hmm. Maybe or not. Let's just figure out what we need to do. And it's like that kind of like reality check of like, all right, we can't just keep bumming around in the studio having fun i mean it's great everyone loves it <laughs> like yeah. it's the best part is making the music having fun finishing it is, is i mean i don't part. really like hitting the road i'm not into traveling so much anymore no, i love I sitting in the studio yeah. i could screw around all day you know um but you brought up terrence uh we okay. skipped over so much with a lot of the nitzarev <laughs> history but whatever we can come back to it if we need to google it uh yeah um but you know after Nitzarab kind of went on a little hiatus or whatever, kind of pretty much finished more or less. Yeah. Uh, you teamed up with Terrence Fixmer, and uh, mm. you guys got your own project, which is now two albums and a couple singles around that, I believe. Probably, t- probably like four or five singles. I don't know. Yeah. He, you know, I just had him on the show, and he mentioned how you kind of got in touch just from mutual uh, appreciation for music. And yeah, I mean, what happened was that he was. I'd actually got out of music completely. I'd kind of got really burnt out. I was living in Detroit. Um, it's where I kind, you know, I started hanging out with like, uh, you know, Clark Warner and. The whole kind of... Yeah, I was going to ask you because there's a big connection to techno for you. Yeah. We'll get into that, but you're hanging out yeah. with those guys. Yeah, so, yeah. So, um, and you know, just like the... I've, I've had a long history with Detroit techno, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, so basically I'd, I'd got kind of burnt out and didn't know what to do and figured that I'd actually go back to the thing that I was at art school that I lied to my parents about going to. <laughs> Uh-oh. It's just whiskey. That's all right. That's they like that. iPads like that. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> um. Anyway, yeah. So I just figured I'd go back to the one thing that I was kind of like the other thing I liked of the music, which was uh, design. So then ended up moving from Detroit, or it's actually a suburb of Detroit, um, Gross Point. Which is so you were living there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for several years. Okay. Uh, what yeah. brought you to Detroit? Women. 
Yeah, that'll happen, right? <laughs> it's the same reason you go anywhere. It's usually it's a woman. work or women, or to get away from or sad situations. Or getting away from both of those things, yeah. Like, whenever somebody moves, the they're w like, words. I needed a change. Like, they lost their job, they had too much fun with drugs or alcohol, or they're running from a relationship, or it's, a, you know. The two W words. Yeah, you never like, well, Denver was amazing, but I just felt <laughs> like, I, you know. I just had such a connection there. I just wanted yeah. to come back. But so you were in Detroit for how many years then? Two and a half, I think, straight years. I think I went back a couple of times. There was a lot of trying to sort the relationship out. Fair enough. Um, yeah. And so <laughs> you were talking about Fixmer. So then basically what happened was I went back to England and I, I actually I went to, so I went to university. Yeah. And finally it you know, realized my parents' dreams and continued my education at the age of like, I think I was like 28, 30 or something. I don't know. I, was, I wasn't young. Um, as a mature student, as they say. Hey, man, I've been to community college. That's still an average age these days there, so it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to hear it. Um, and then I ended up doing film, actually. Like it was, I went to do design and then ended up doing film. And once I left, I started really getting it like I wanted, you know, I was making films and I was like, I was working, uh, trying to be, I was like a jobbing director, but also just to make ends meet was um, an assistant director. So in all of this time, unbeknownst to me, then um, Nova Mute, which was the kind of like the techno side of Mute, sub-label of Mute Records, sure. um, that got a bunch of different people. Uh, including Terence, to do remixes of old Knights Reb tracks. And um, so I think he did Let Your Body Learn. And uh, so Seth Rogen, you know, Seth, not Rogen, Seth um, from Mute. Um, old days. I don't know. Probably not. probably not. Yeah. Anyway, so Seth uh, contacted me and said, yeah, this guy, this young guy from France, Terence Fixmer, wants to get in touch with you to see if you want to do some vocals. Uh had heard the remix so i was like yeah no, i'm down mm -hmm. and like kind of looked into what he was doing and it's just like oh yeah awesome shit at yeah. that point you know <laughs> yeah, it's just like oh yeah i do want to talk to this guy uh, yeah so it, it took forever you know he came over to london I, I at the time he came over to london to play me tracks i think he was playing it um but i was working on a short film um um with uh um uh, like basically, I'd, I'd basically I'd, I was invo really involved in the music industries, yeah. in the film industry. Yeah, so, that was your yeah. So focus. I was convinced that like that's what I was doing. I'm like, yeah, I'll just I'll see this guy, mm -hmm. and then he played me like you know ten tracks or something. I'm like, yeah, totally, I can work on this, and it kind of got me a little bit somewhat excited about. Kind of got you kickstarted, yeah. Again. And then it took another I don't know like ten months, and then I ended up going out to Lil um, and uh, we basically we hung out for just I think like three or four days and did ten songs awesome and so it was so, a very intense short productive yeah, session yeah and it just everything clicked really like I mean these were rough you know initial versions but it was yeah. just like we looked at each other and we were like because the idea was that I was just going to sing a couple of tracks on his next album yeah and like then, kind of guest appearances of sorts. Yeah, exactly that kind of thing. So then we looked at each other and we were like, 
Well, I guess we got an album. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is a hard thing to actually do normally. That's, that's so. my past week. I don't know if I have an album, but like we were collaborating and we're like, this actually doesn't suck. There's something here, <laughs> exactly. you know? Yeah. So then, yeah. So then we just, it kind of, that. so that was uh, 90, 94, I guess, 93, 90, no, 2003, 2004, sorry. Um, and uh, yeah, then we released it. Started touring and carried on working together. And um, I mean, it's definitely you've had probably a handful of tours. I I can think of three or four over the over the period of shorter and longer lengths, including. Uh, I, well, you reunited with the whole Knights of Reb thing for a minute. That well. all, that happened, which kind of got in the way of. It. I mean, it's it. I mean, Terence and I both agree that the reason that Knights Reb, in some ways, the reason that Knights Reb reformed is because me and Terence started working mm-hmm. together, and it kind of intensified the um, the the you know the 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 whatever adulation or the you know the pure greed of promoters to want <laughs> to sure. have Knights Reb, but. Um, but yeah, we just so we've 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 been together now for uh, what are we? So this is like yeah, it's like twelve, 12 years. years, yeah, yeah. And now we just we're just doing some shows now. We've been working on some tracks back. At, you know, a lot of the time we just do the back and forth thing. Sure. You know, just send files back and forth, and then if we get a chance, we'll be in the studio. But I've been doing uh, I've been doing most of the vocals in LA. He'll send me ideas, mm-hmm. and then we'll. I mean, the crazy thing about Terence is that he's got absolutely no understanding or interest in like, like rock and roll or syncopated rhythms mm-hmm. stuff. That to me is just like normal. Yeah, well, you know, when I brought that up to Terence, I was really surprised to find out that he more or less doesn't give a shit about it. Because like when I listen to you know, any sort of electric body music yeah. uh, or, you know, anything in this industrial vein, I just always automatically assume, like, oh, these guys are rockers that like synthesizers. Yeah. Maybe that's me growing up in the small town or something. No, I, but, I mean, it's true. I think it's true. And the amazing thing about Terrence is he – so he's got no idea about what – you know, so, like, for him, and there's, there's various tracks that we work on, and for him it's just this, like – pounding like the techno track yeah. and then for me it's actually like it's not yeah it's actually a half beat or like you know it's a skip beat and he mm-hmm. he doesn't hear it at all so he's always amazed when i come up with like these different rhythms for lyrics mm-hmm. and you know the the syncopation well i mean the, the important thing to remember is he he comes from that whole belgium scene where that that thing was really big back then that, yeah. that sound and uh you know, like, whereas I grew up in the Midwest, you got Detroit and Chicago. While I was yeah. a little far from them, all the raves had that kind of music going on. Uh, yeah. Some of the variants were pretty terrible. Some of it was good. But either way, it seeps into your subconscious, whether you like it or not. And uh, Yeah, I think that's really true. I think it's really true. And I think, I mean, maybe, maybe Terrence might not realize it, but, like, let's say the stuff that he's influenced by definitely has rock roots, for example. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's, like, maybe a second degree of it or something. I mean, honestly, like, there's stuff that there's stuff that he, he'll play me, and I'm just like, yeah, I totally get it, because it's blues. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, he thinks it's just this banging techno track, and I'm like, yeah, but it's also just 
blues. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you know, the thing is, he's, he's a, definitely a diverse producer as well. Like, not definitely. only can he do that Yeah, the that stuff he's been doing, the solo stuff he's been doing. Really psychedelic, tripped out vibes. I and I mean, but the thing is, you, you're you also, like, you know, we're talking about this connection with techno. you got a lot more collaborations kind of messing around at the moment. Some are coming into fruition. Some are just kind of having yeah. fun. Yeah, I'm, uh, messing around, I'm messing with, uh, with uh, Drum Cell. Yeah, and Louis Flores here in Berlin. Here in Berlin, I heard some of uh, some of their album in Moe's car, and man, that is one extremely hard album. It's man. Hardcore, man. Yeah, we had this night. So you know, it's a typical Berlin scheduling thing. I was supposed to come over at you know whenever I was supposed to come over. We started six at, p.m. and you start at one a.m. Yeah, and then <laughs> like I'm leaving at eight a.m. Yeah, but we did these two amazing tracks. They're, it's incredible. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to. I mean, the, the stuff they're doing, him and Lewis, it's rad. Yeah, I, like I, I really, uh, I really, because they've been working. I think most of the year, if not like since a little bit last year too. It's a little so. bit. They're on a similar schedule to us. I played him some of the Black Line, and uh, I mean, we kind of were just laughing because it's like, all right, so what? Where is this? You know, the influences are kind of like Neubauten to Coil mm-hmm. and then anything in between that's electronic. Totally. <laughs> I mean, but also those guys, I mean, Mo knows he's all up on Jeff Mills and all that stuff too. He's, he's a yeah. dance dude, but he comes, I would say, more from like a rock background or being in LA and having all these collaborations. Well, he's and a stuff musician. And, I mean, he really and, can yeah. play, which is totally unusual. And, and well, <laughs> and Luis, you know, he's totally into you know more of that thing he doesn't care about what's coming out on minus or any we were doing or... yeah exactly we were doing like every take so it'd be i mean they kind of switched off you know what i mean yeah uh so there would be like lewis and me in the studio and then then mo and me in the studio well yeah basically because it's, it's a small mm-hmm. room and then every time either one of them came back in they'd be like yeah, let's make it harder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so just keep stepping it up. Yeah, basically. No, it's, I really I really enjoyed it. I really uh, enjoyed it. And then I, I got a promo from uh, Raffaele Atanasio from Italy. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. How did that come about? Just uh, could have been Brian. Could have been Brian Black. Okay. Uh, anyway. I think he introduced me to... Yeah, I think he introduced us. Yeah, because he's a really interesting cool dude i don't know if you've uh met him yet personally. i've actually met him we've just had okay. a lot of like internet you know yeah he's connection. a cool dude i have i've been around him a lot in italy i got stranded there in june and like he's the one he's the first one that, it's not the worst but after a long weekend and they were telling me that it was gonna be four days that i was gonna be stuck in a hotel airport Ooh. and i was just i just wanted to get home yeah. but you know he's the first one that gets a hold of me he's like i'll pick you up we're gonna go get some bomb ass pizza you know what i mean like one of those cool dudes no he's totally and, totally uh, chill amazing musician also like he right now he's on this kick of doing like hard as nails techno uh, he does yeah. this really soulful stuff he can play the piano Shit, you know man. like there's this video online of him where he's played uh the bells live with jeff mills he's playing the <laughs> piano part over the you know while jeff Crazy. does the, the track and uh so he's a really interesting dude and and you you brought up brian you did a track with him on, on motor right? various tracks with him yeah we did uh like motor and then with brian himself as well with brian mm-hmm. black and then we did our not so secret 
secret band. I don't know even know that one. Well, maybe it was more secret than I imagine. All righty. So we had a we did basically there was there was a night's to where Motor and Terrence were opening. Oh, was that like in two thousand ten or something? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So we okay. were all, we were all sharing the same tour bus. Yeah. Okay. And drinking a little bit, just a little bit, just and a little, a little, just a little, little rock and roll, little snip, little nips. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and then we decided this one night to. To make a, a like a a kind of cliche joke techno record mm-hmm. called uh, Homotronic. Okay, and uh, in the title, well, the band was called Homotronic. So it was mm-hmm. me, Motor, and Terrence, and then we so we released this track. Um, uh, you look like a gay. Yeah, never heard of it. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> right on. And it actually came out on vinyl and everything, or uh, yeah, like, yeah. Okay, it was like it was the big hit of uh, uh, Tigger is quite a big lyrical. He gets a lot of shout outs. Yeah, I've been I've been uh, keeping in touch with him. I can't wait to get him on the show. He's an interesting dude. Yeah, funny you know? guy. But uh, so yeah, you, you guys all kind of met. When is that when you met Brian or before? No, I met Brian in London. I so. In the after I'd lived oh, yeah, in Detroit for a there. few years, yeah, I, I lived in Detroit for a few years, and then, like I say, went back to study back in England, and then ended up in um, in the East End of London in Shoreditch. At kind of the right time to be there, like uh, Nag Nag Nag, which was this club that was going on in the West End, um, and just opposite, like literally opposite my apartment was was this pub called the old blue last and they started doing shows upstairs it used to be this like really kind of shitty scary old man's pub where you you're more likely to get a bottle over your head than you know a drink <laughs> anyway so um and i i just tapped you know because it was literally across the street and uh so i went there and that's i first met brian then he was he was playing as motor mm-hmm and then, um, yeah, just realized obviously all the connections of people we knew and started doing some stuff. And then we worked on, in fact, for the Homotronic thing, I think we did a whole album, which is kind of funny. Uh, it was it uh, Wall of Sound released it out of London. Okay. The 12 inch book. Um, and then, yeah, I guess that's yeah. That's the first time I met him, and then we just kind of carried on, you know, bumping into each other a lot. I literally bumped into him in the street last night. So. Yeah, and he'll be here apparently soon. Right? He'll be here in about an hour. But um, and he's bringing wine. Apparently, he's Damn already it, got better. Some. So anyway, uh, you know, you've you've got all these connections. That's when you met him. You're you're messing with Terrence. One question that uh, I fielded some on Facebook because I'm a lazy dude and I like to ask fans for questions. Uh, Patrick Skoog brought up an interesting one. He wants to know, like, you know, now you're kind of doing these gigs, but let's say it's it's not completely in the techno realm, but there's that crossover period or, like, ground. It's usually some old EBM fans come techno fans. So would you say, how do, how do these gigs compare today versus your gigs back when Knights of Reb was, like, blowing up and everything? Well, when, I mean, at the point where we were, you know, when we actually had, like, a, you know, 
like a semi and a bus and mm-hmm. like a semi full of lights and sound and you know like rock a, and roll rock and roll yeah at that point then obviously it's it's total insanity like we took catering on the road with us like we had our own catering really people. yeah <laughs> so you you weren't gonna fuck with anything at the venues no we just it t- really is the worst though you go to a club and the, you you look at the itinerary and it says dinners at the club and part of me dies inside i know it's never good it's never and they're good. always like oh but we got this chef that i'm like nice just sucks do the buyout do yeah, the exactly. buyout every time that, yeah. tw- that 25 euros can go far exactly <laughs> there's some guys like uh I won't I won't say his name in case he's embarrassed, but there's like an old school American guy. Like when he comes, actually a lot of them. It's not just one. They'll come to Europe, for example, and all they'll eat is like McDonald's or Burger King. You can go to like Italy where you have the most amazing food on the beach <laughs> because they're like, "Well, I don't know what the fuck that is." You know, I'm just uh, like, "Dude, incredible. yeah, I uh, yeah." The, we it was in. I mean, it's it's a different thing. Obviously, it's a t- it's it, it being I've you know kind of like step down from being in a rock band yeah. and that was the interesting thing in some ways about Nights Forever because for the most part we didn't have guitars it was just drums mm-hmm. electronics and a vocalist and the thing like there's there's been stuff that uh, reviews of me and Terrence which um, back you know like when we started were kind of like a cool uh, cool moniker which was that you know it's a laptop and a mic yeah and then there's this fucking huge sound coming out recently what we're trying to do me and terrence and with uh black line back in la then we're using hardware we're using going to like use electron octatracks yep. and uh you know machine Drummer drum. too if yeah. Or you wanted to mess with it anyway, right? Yeah, well, we have, we have, so De- basic, Derek is like, he's just an amazing, like, his stupid fingers, oh, yeah. fuss and anything. That he played is. before me at Further. I mean, I've, I've, I, the first time I ever saw him was Further oh, 2001. Right, course, yeah. yeah, that's then, right. Yeah, back then, yeah. And that was pretty mind blowing. I was completely wrecked, so it was even more crazy. I think he was completely wrecked for about another 10 years after that. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, and then he played before me this time, and, uh, <laughs> It's pretty wild to watch him do it. Like, you know what I mean? You literally can't see his fingers moving. Like, yeah. It's just insane. Spirit fingers. Spirit fingers. <laughs> Ghost fingers. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but what I guess what I'm saying is that, like, you just kind of move with the times. Like, so, yeah, when we were doing, like, huge lighting and the rock thing, even though it wasn't rock, I mean, it was rock delivery it's, it's, system it's concerts let's put it that concerts, way yeah. yes doing concerts yeah so the what's what's always been really good about working with terrence is that we we kind of play off of each other like you know that we we have a set list which he constantly changes and then i realize that he's changed the set list when i arrive at the venue so songs that i may have rehearsed he's not playing and then songs that mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I should have rehearsed. He is playing, but I mean, isn't that always the kind of the case with bands? But that, but so what I was going to say was that it's kind of like even with his reluctance to be or his indifference to rock performance yeah. type thing, he uh, he does actually have a lot of the <laughs> of the qualities of being in a band. And when it's just me and him on stage, we we do. I mean, we literally it's like we look at each other and we're just like, oh, you know, we can tell when. We're going to do something else in the song, yeah. and it's good chemistry. Yeah, it's very good chemistry. And then, like you know, Ableton is 
you know good in in and of itself to be able to flick between things but now that we're using um the octatrack we're mm-hmm. actually using two octatracks and then a machine drum steel for like those who don't know it's like a big sampler you can store a lot of sound sequences there. sampler synth yeah. but in like a, really a computer hard, in a box yeah like a really hardy box as well oh, like yeah. you could drop kick that thing yeah. across the venue and it'll still be fine that's that's a it's a big claim, but it's possible for sure. <laughs> I'll try. I already fucked up the screen of my rhythm. Oh no, really? Yeah, but they're gonna they're gonna repair it. Those so guys are so awesome about repairing stuff. Yeah, um, I mean, Dave. it takes a while, but yeah. it, it's you know, Daniel, brother Daniel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he's so. down the street from me, so here in Berlin. No, in, back oh, in, in LA. LA, yeah. cool. I mean, if you want me to bring somebody back, I'm just gonna get it fixed here. I need to. Okay. I actually got too many projects on my stuff. But I appreciate it. <laughs> but uh yeah, I mean the thing is is like um you know, I've seen you and Terrence play I've well I've seen also Nights of Rap together, but actually that was just at uh the Detroit festival. I didn't see like cuz I'm too young to have seen you guys back in the Same. old days or whatever. But um you know, it's as much as it is like whatever you want to say, EBM or or techno or industrial, or whatever. To me, it's still like very much kind of a rock concert quality, and yeah, you know, like uh, I've seen, you know, I, I was at the show at, at Berghain too, just after after further, and I was, you know, it's really interesting because Terrence is into it, but you still like, I mean, like you said, now you're fifty and. The, the energy that you have on the stage when you get up there, it's fucking crazy. You know, like, uh, when I was, when I was at Burkhan, I was standing next to Marcel Detman and we're both just kind of sitting there quiet watching the show. And then like, I was noticing the whole time cause like, you got the glasses, like there's, there's the performance, you're doing your thing. You're not just kind of standing there. Yeah. And then, uh, I just kind of look at Marcel and he's like, yeah, dude, he's like one of the last living rock stars. (laughs) You know what I mean? And it's the truth because I love myself. There's there's not a whole lot of people that fucking rock anymore. Like I, I yeah. saw I saw at the drive-in earlier this spring, and like whatever musical bias aside, mm. that was a band that they're in before Mars Volta. Uh, incredible stage performance. You know what I mean? Like I love it when people perform. You know, and uh, well, that's you know what it, it goes back to that show I said, whereas Malaria. Neubauten and the birthday party that Mm -hmm. like literally that like something clicked in my head and I'm like oh you've really got to just go fucking balls out and be someone different on stage like you have to be someone different and that I think the only reason that I'm able to to do it still at this elderly point in my life is that I just know that that's the switch that you flick to go on stage like that's people it. want to be entertained you know like i'm 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 not the best performer per se on stage i'm and i catch myself after the fact i'm like i probably should have been a little <laughs> bit more in the animated. moment and animated but i you know for me i'm one of those like oh it's all about the music man one but of those I, kind of things, I, but, I dj i dj it you know not you know a whole bunch but i do mm-hmm. you know i do actually get paid to dj and you know i took a book uh, a page out of uh, Andrew Weatherall's book. He, he, like, he used to be neighbors with me in, in oh, Shoreditch. Oh, crazy. Yeah. So I'd go down to the, you know, Rutter's Golf Club. And he was a golfer? You guys no, were both golfers? No. no. Come on. I, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, but he, you know, he'd, he'd said to me, he was like, yeah, I'd never bothered learning 
to to mix records i just yeah. i just play records i want to play and so i i think that that's justifiable when you're doing like you're basically your it's your job as a dj i mean and you know obviously brian is a big performer when he's djing but as yeah. far as i'm concerned it like for me and i understand what you're saying it's like yeah i'm just i'm playing a list of songs that i want to play together or yeah. that i'm figuring out as i'm in the room yeah. and i think you're going to enjoy it it's like you don't need to i'm not part of it yeah, yeah totally i'm just playing it yeah i mean <laughs> at the end of the day that's what i go with because that's what i truly feel yeah I, but I, i'm saying it wouldn't hurt sometimes if i felt like i actually wanted to be there i do want to be there that's the thing but like punch uh, if I am, I'm having a good time or I've had some drinks. It's, it happens. <laughs> but the thing is, the worst is bringing out the guns, you know, the guys that do the finger guns and stuff like oh, that. God, yeah, I hate all that. Uh, honestly, I mean, I've, you know, I mean, I, I love Richie, I love Ali, I love all these guys that are like, you know, the big, yeah. the big guys. But I'm just, you know, it's like, yeah, I guess it's good what they're doing. I guess it's interesting. They're pushing back the boundaries of performance. But I, 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 just, I just come from a different world, I guess, where it's like, if you, yeah, if you want to be a performer. You got to be a fucking performer. Be a fucking performer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, though. Like, uh, you know, I, I love techno to death, and I'll probably make it in some form or another till I die. But, like, next, you know, it's rock for me period and <laughs> rock and roll like when i go to a concert i don't want to see this like staring at the shoes kind of shit i want to see my rockers fucking go nuts did you ever read, personally. Did you ever read that book uh, uh michael Ojanti um coming through slaughter no all right so it's a book about um buddy bolden buddy mm-hmm. bolden was is um supposedly and certainly by this book although it's explain more about the book but buddy bolden is one of the innovators of of jazz in new orleans like so mm-hmm. marching music was really big because actually because a lot of germans were living in america so yeah. there's a lot of like, oompa, oompa, like yeah have you heard the techno here you could you could figure <laughs> exactly. that out <laughs> so then there's a bunch of people eventually and buddy bolden was supposedly the first person he's a he's a uh uh, you know, like a horn player. And um, he started, so he had his own band, a Buddy Bolden band, and they and it was all started to use syncopated rhythms from African rhythms. And so this book is based on research. There's only one photograph of Buddy Bolden and his band. Um, but based on research, this is Michael Ojanti that did, um, he did The English Patient, you know, the big movie. Yeah, yeah whatever. But this book is like this big. You can read it in an afternoon. And when I read that, I read that, I don't know, it was probably like 18, 19 or something. I don't know, whenever it came out. And it made me realize that this this thing, this thing that we call rock and roll, this thing has been around for, for the all of humanity, like, you know, like going back through time, there's always going to be these figures, these people that that emulate this 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 desire to perform, to entertain, and to be shocking, yeah. and to be unnerving. almost larger than life. Or yeah, something, unnerving. Yeah, I recommend reading that book, and it like it just makes so much sense of like modern day 
music. Like the he was completely discounted. He was completely fucked over. Mm-hmm. Was a terrible, terrible person. Like you know, was doing loads of drugs. Was fucking loads of prostitutes, and was just in general like uh, doing the rock and roll thing. Just doing the rock and roll thing. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so I. But I mean, is it is it more of like an academic read or like no, a wild no, and crazy no, read or? It's, it's actually so a lot of it. Um, I like from a stylistic view as well, which is great. Um, um, the way that Michael Ojanti wrote it was that um, it, he so it's patois because it's you know turn of the century New Orleans, mm-hmm. and so in order to in order to show how the sentences were structured. In, there's no um, the, for for quite a lot, if not all of the conversations. It's been a while since I've read it, um, but they it, the 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 lines are just printed, so there's a gap between them on the page. You know, so it's mm-hmm. like a couple of lines down, gap, and then there's another line of actual text, and then it goes down. Yeah. There's no, so there's no um, there's no like you know commas, periods, or sure. It's almost it's like really a free form poetry sort of thing. It's, I mean, and it can't, you know, and again, you can't, you know, get back into the, the like you say, the free form, that sort of it. Gotcha. And what's it called again? Coming Through Slaughter. Okay. Highly recommended. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, I think when it comes down to it, you're always going to have, whether it, it doesn't matter what kind of music, when you go to see music, I refer to it as live music. That could be bands, but sometimes it's it's DJs or whatever it's going to be. Yeah. People want to be entertained, you know? And uh, I think however you do it, it doesn't matter as long as it comes across as sincere. And there's sure. a lot of a lot of performers, you go out and see them do their thing, and it, it's not uh, sincere. And some people eat it up because they don't realize that. But like, if you've been doing this for a while, you go to enough concerts, yeah. maybe you're not even a musical person. You can tell like, okay, these guys fucking rock. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yesterday I watched like an orchestra kind of do their thing for a bit. And at first it was a little weird, but then, um, it got really incredible quickly and like really intense. And then after the show, like I was in, I was in the back room and they were just like blown away. They're like, wow, I couldn't believe how intense this show was. And you can see where it comes off is, at first, they're kind of going through the motions; they're a little nervous, and then it just gets really raw and the intensity, totally into yeah. it. Yeah, there's yeah. a there's a actually there's a record that um, I turned uh, Clark Warner onto um, in the nineties. I think maybe it was the early two thousands actually. Um, there's a jazz record, like it's a total just. It's a Brad Maldow. Okay. From he's from San Diego, and it was a, he, so he's a Meldau, M E L D A H A U, whatever it is, Meldau, whatever. Okay. Um, but the the he does cover versions, or this is back then he was doing cover versions of 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 you know kind of popular doing doing old jazz cover versions, but then doing mm-hmm. like like more modern like rock music cover versions. Interesting, and it's the intensity of it, and it's just literally it's just a stand-up bass, piano, and drums, and mm-hmm. Brad Meldale plays the piano, and just like the intensity of the the recording is like exactly what you just said. It's like you can feel that, you know. I mean, there's like uh, 
what's his? Well, it's uh, his name is Chris Ott. He used to work for one Pitchfork before it went to complete bullshit. So it was over right. ten years ago. He does shallow rewards and all this, and he's talking about some reviews and. I forget which record he was talking about. He was talking about when the guitar player was playing, and you can hear like how the tension in the strings, like they're about to fucking break, like how crazy yeah. that take was on the record and stuff yeah. like that. And uh, well, you yeah, listen, I mean, you listen to uh, you know. I mean, I've got I've got no discrimination in terms of what I listen to. If it's good and it hits me, you know, in the totally heart, that's it. It's I I, I just I. Well, preferably I love the music that I'm listening to. But even if I'm at a live show, whether it's a DJ or a band or uh, one dude with a guitar acoustic thing, what it matters is to me is that, like, as I said before, not only is it sincere, but, like, that the performance is really... I can appreciate an awesome performance. You know what I mean? They're, like, they're, and, like people, anyone that tells me about, you know... Like, I mean, I love electronic music. I spent my entire life <laughs> making yeah. electronic music. I love electronic music. I'm immersed in it. I have been fortunate enough to work with some of the greatest people involved in electronic music. But anyone that tells me that, you know, and I was the same when we were kids, we would like, we, we were so disparaging about rock and guitars. We were like, fuck you. You don't know what's happening. We've got a synth idiot. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I can imagine, you know, cause everybody was talking about like when, uh, the electric guitar came around and everybody was teaching yeah. the acoustic electric guitar yeah, all yeah, these guys Dylan, that were, yeah. you know, Bob Dylan is like, fuck these kids, you yeah, know what like, I mean? Uh, I can do whatever the fuck and now I, like. I can't even imagine in the eighties when every kid started showing up with a synthesizer. <laughs> we would show up for we'd show up for gigs. There'd be like SH one hundred one and our stupid fucking keyboard the amp, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and then the floor tom and the snare, and we had a cymbal as well. And so, like, you know, we'd so we'd set up and they'd like, you know, like mic it up. They'd be questioning why, you know, where's the rest of the drum kit, and then we'd start to do the uh, sound check, and the, the, you know, it's like some fucking huge dude. Yeah, of course. Long tattoos, hair. long yeah. hair, smoking cigarettes. And he's like, nonstop. he's like, all right, well, that sounds good. Just uh, let me know when the guitarist and the bassist arrive. No. <laughs> it's like, no, this is it, idiot. But I mean, in, in the end, would you win these guys over or not? Really, uh, it's. Probably not. I mean, yeah. we were, it was hard, you know, I mean, maybe we did. Maybe we made them realize, like, you know, we when we were saying to them, like, no, that is, that's, that's not the bass line. Or that's not just the synth, that's the bass line, that's the, the top line, that's everything. That's, yeah. that's our song in this little plastic yeah, box. Yeah, we, we need three, we need four channels. Uh, <laughs> we're good. We're um, good. But I mean, so... You know, those shows back at that point, I didn't even think to ask it before, but, like, what was the energy like at, like, say, 1988 at these clubs and the music's going off? Was it intense or were people not we, really... The first, the first show we did, like I say, was, I think it was 83. Um, and it, by 88, things were, like, better, I think, kind of. I would hope so. We were, uh, like, by 88, we were touring with Depeche Mode in Europe. Um, again, just like complete fucking idiots, didn't know what the hell we were doing, but we're doing these um, these huge venues. Like it was a winter tour, so we were playing like indoor venues. So it was, did you get on well with the band? Yeah, that was 
like from the get-go and we were really reluctant like we didn't want to tour with them we we're like fuck depeche mode fucking idiots yeah. <laughs> fucking pop stars we don't want to be in a fucking road with pop stars and then we kind of like you know met and like oh yeah all right you kind of cool yeah but did did you uh was there a certain inspiration that ended up coming from them too well what happened you're absolutely right yeah very incisive um we basically we 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 were supposed to go with them actually to tour the states. We were supposed to be on that 101 tour, the uh, the American um, tour with uh, music for the masses. And in fact, there was like there was merchandise made, all this kind of stuff. And then U.S. immigration, we were signed to Geffen as well. U.S. immigration denied entry because it was quite common back then to be denied entry to the U.S. Mm-hmm. For various reasons, like you know, killing Joe. Hey man, it still is now. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not unusual. Yeah. Um, but they, they, they singled us out as lacking with uh, lacking musical merit. And really? We were like, and we we're like, mm, yeah, all right, yeah, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't, we didn't do that tour. But what we ended up doing was, um start making the next record and that we we it definitely influenced us like the the idea of uh, like you know we'd only played clubs before that mm-hmm. like tiny little clubs performance was you had like a new perspective dying. suddenly like oh there's you know more than you know a few hundred people it's mm-hmm. like you have to like how to project not a performance necessarily but like a song like how do we want to so that's when we went. It, 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 I mean, all of these things are informative. You know, anyone you work with, you just like totally. take something from it, and you have your own. Obviously, it's your spin on it. It's your interpretation. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think you can, you can't undo something like that when you go from playing small club rooms from like two hundred people to. Yeah. Uh, I guess with Tepesh Mode, it's thousands upon thousands, Tens 10, thousands, 15,000, yeah. 20,000. Yeah. Uh, you know, like on my personal scale, it'd be like going from doing 150 people in the States to, you know, festival shows now are easily four or 5,000 people yeah. at the stages. An average club night for me is probably 1,200 to 1,500. Yeah. So it's like um, everything changes when the crowd's that much bigger. The songs that are intimate can in a way, be almost more intimate if you can lock in that entire yeah. crowd, which is hard. And then there's some songs where it's like, okay, we really need to fucking make this one hit. Or, I mean, it's for a, for a band. For a DJ, you're just like, all right, this is a moment where I got to bend the I mean, out Yeah, but then there's that, there's the, you know, I mean, like, uh, when, I, when, I, when I DJ, then things that I think are going to work, and then you you like you know immediately like all right this isn't it becomes effect. the longest three or four minutes <laughs> of your life yeah. so you don't want to stop it short because you know you just got to keep the continuity going but like yeah those are those are moments but it's all this it's all the same thing it's a realization of it's it's literally is you're feeding off of the room and mm-hmm. you're trying to deliver something to the room to change it i mean that's the idea yeah. is that you're trying to change like in some ways, when we were younger, and it happened quite a lot, was that, you know, we'd play in a room and it still happens for everybody. You play in a room and everyone's just like arms are crossed and they're just like waiting for you to prove something. 
man, that still happens a lot everywhere yeah. you go. And the, you know, I'm I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. I'll I'll mm-hmm. do what I think is gonna do that. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Mostly it does work. I mean, like you get the yeah. you get the measure of the room and you get the measure of the crowd, and you're able to 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 get through it. Yeah. But there's really nothing as depressing as when you try everything and it's not working. That happens too. Yeah. <laughs> Part of life. But, I mean, when it comes down to it, like, uh, you know, then, then you have these shows where you, the, the crowd maybe necessarily isn't that good. And then it comes down to two things at the end of the night. The promoter's like, that was fucking incredible. Everybody know, was telling right? me they loved it. And I'm like, really? Because really? <laughs> there was about four dudes... Stroking their chins and their hoodies up front. <laughs> Everybody else ran to the bar, but all right. So there's that argument. Or there's the fact that they actually are blown away and they don't really know how to absorb it. They're like, do that's I dance? Do point. I, you know? That's an interesting point. Like, uh, you know, I, I saw some pr- concerts in the past week. That's where a really interesting point. I wasn't necessarily like moving around or anything, but I'm just kind of sitting there like amazed. Absorbing. Uh, yeah, just yeah. like, all right, uh filtering out the details that I do like and I don't like. And then afterwards, I'm just like, okay, that was fucking incredible. Yeah. You know? And then, you know, the, yeah, that's a really interesting point that you, the the kind of like the, this the uh, you know, I mean, you're younger than me, but, you know, we're both kind of, we're not kids anymore. Yeah. And there is, you know, something that happens after a while where you go to Well, a we show. are drinking in the afternoon, so we well. might want to watch that statement. But yes, I know what you're saying. <laughs> well, I just think we, you know, the, the, I hadn't really thought about that as the one of the things for, you know, the, the, the younger attendees of, mm-hmm. of a show that they're also just like, this is what they've seen everyone else do. Or else, yeah. This is like that. They're you know because they, they, I don't know. I don't want to get too philosophical about it, but like the disconnect because everything is so available, you can just you can watch anything, see anything True. from your phone, let alone your laptop mm-hmm. or your computer. Or you know, you get the two minute YouTube clip. Yeah, and no, then no, right, that's good. Yeah, I can't stand an hour of this. But. Totally. <laughs> you know, I mean, what it comes down to is a lot of kids these days. I guess, um, you know, let's say 18 to 25-year-olds or something like that, uh, they're kind of conditioned to expect a certain thing, which that's fine because I guess I was at, at that age too. But, like, let's use, for example, like Richie Houghton or something. He delivers a certain show, uh, and that's how it is, you know, all bias aside. And, they, you know, a lot of these guys kind of set that precedent. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with it, but if that's what they come to expect and then I show up, and yeah, I start you're, you're gonna... playing some like weirdo techno shit, and they're kind of like, Whoa. they don't really know how to handle it. So yeah. at that point, I kind of maybe I'm like, okay, this isn't gonna be my best show of the year by any means. But then I take it as like, all right, I'm now the role of the educator. This might not work tonight for me, but they might look back in like five Resonate. years and be like, actually, yeah. that guy knew what was going on. He's you know, I totally agree. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I. Th- I think, you know, certainly here in this city, there's a lot of conversations that go on about the kind of, you know, since you brought his name up, Richie, you know, Chris, Ali, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's that in a stratosphere that is, 
it's i mean i it's hard to quantify what they're doing mm-hmm. other than continuing a brand that they they're just performing they're, they're doing their performing. thing you know yeah but it's nothing to do what i what i, I guess what i'm trying to <clears throat> equate to what you're saying is that what they're doing is this thing that's up there way up there and it's great and it's um, hats off to mm-hmm. them really but it doesn't necessarily filter down to everything else. Like you are actually, you, cro- you it's like you're crossing the street from the sunny side to the dark side. <laughs> yeah. You when know, you listen to that and then go. Yeah. It, it especially, you know, <clears throat> with me, like I can keep it pretty civil, but like if I'm doing a longer set, sometimes I'll get really deep or, or weird or whatever. That's the whole point or sometimes of a like set. I just yeah. want to, fucking play some hard shit you know yeah. it, it really depends on the night or there's times where i show up and they're like okay this guy plays at like trezor and Bergheim and shit and i start dropping a few house records and they're like what the fuck yeah, what you the know so idiot. but um the thing is is it's like i don't know i guess the djs that i've always been inspired by growing up over time were the djs that were at the end of the night um, you know, see, so like you have your headliners, they're playing their show or whatever, and then they're done, and then the, the the closing guy goes on, and he starts playing like you know, he's the old junkie that has all the records and stuff. So like, <laughs> not dr- drug junkie, but know, techno junkie mean, or whatever. Yeah. And then like, so all of a sudden, everybody is surrounded at the end of the night, just kind of like watching this person do their thing. Yeah. Like even the guys that were like, everybody came here to see. Those are the guys that are at the end of the night. Like, okay, this you know. The yeah. DJ's DJ sort of thing. I Which love those is, kind of that's people. How, I mean, and that's how it, I mean, that's how it's been for years. You know, ago with like in Detroit. Yeah. Obviously, I spent my fair share of time there. You know, Derek, fucking Derek made lunatic that he is can fucking close a party like that guy. Yeah, I mean, there's, <laughs> you know, I've seen plenty of uh, of Derek May sets and. There's really still he's got you know they coined that term high tech soul but really like nobody can do it like he does you know what I'm saying I tell you a story about Derek back in the do. back in the eighties um, so we we just released our second album and Derek did two remixes from the album mm-hmm. and uh, we were on tour it was actually in eighty eight I was on tour with Depeche Mode and um, so this is like pre cell phone stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I get this call. You know, I'm in my hotel room, day of the show, and it's fucking Derek, mad as hell, like fucking so pissed hey off. Hey man, let me tell you something, man. <laughs> what the fuck do you think you're doing? <laughs> what we we turned down his mixes, and okay. somehow he'd found my hotel. Oh really? And my room, yeah, and was calling me up from Detroit. That's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about this the other day. I was like, wait, how the fuck did he find <laughs> And he was pissed, man. Fucking so pissed. And I'm just like, no, I just we just didn't feel it. Yeah. Sorry, dude. And he was fucking wasn't having it. It was like a 45, well, you know, Derek, like a 45-minute phone conversation of one-sided conversation. <laughs> and... uh and then, of course, like when we did this reunion thing, we're just like, we're like, oh, let's listen back to everything we have. Like, Mute were asking mm-hmm. us to listen. And so we listened to those mixes and we're like, oh, those are pretty good. Although, <laughs> uh, oh, those are the ones that came out like 10 yeah. years ago or something, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, yeah, he did those back in like, back in the 80s. And for some reason, it was just, we were like, fuck that. No, it's not our sound. 
Yeah. Well, that's the thing, though. I mean, that there's stuff where, uh, not necessarily remixes, but tracks that I wasn't big on before, like that I've released on my label or put on on others, and they commission remixes. I'm like, I don't get it. And then later on, I'm like, it's that. Okay, get it. it makes yeah. sense now, you know? Yeah. So. No, I mean, and the, yeah, but the, the the beautiful thing is the crazy Midwest electronic music scene is, you know, the fact that it's it's been it's been there nearly as long as the European electronic music scene. Well, I mean, yeah. Granted, you have like older things that roll in, like Kraftwerk or Tangerine Dream and whatnot. But when we start talking about dance music. Can't bring you can't do do it without talking about Detroit and Chicago. <laughs> it's nuts when you think about it. It's just yeah, but I mean, bananas. like, so you know, you, you say you know you're DJing, blah blah blah. Like when you DJ, are you playing like these kind of records, or what? What are you getting into? Um, yeah, I play, I play some, I play some older stuff. Uh, I I play like um, I I, I guess I I. I play a variety of like stuff that fits with the the kind of the the the, the ambience of what I am about musically. Um, so I definitely like I was I was just playing in San Francisco for uh, the Pride weekend. And I was doing the pre-party for that, and I played a couple of things that had guitars in it, and people were like, "Fuck this! It's rock music!" <laughs> I'm like, "It's a sample." Wow. <laughs> to sample of a guitar, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is dance music these days is getting very narrow-minded. It's very genre-specific, whereas it, growing up, I didn't really feel like that was um, such a prerequisite. But Absolutely, yeah. Well, I think also that it's, you know, the business has gotten harder. There's less shows. There's less money. True. I mean, people, you know... Well, I, I guess you know what I think. There's potentially. You, I mean, you, you were around back then. I don't know how many techno, like, well, not techno, but like rave parties, whatever you're going to back in the day, if if any, a or lot. quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of the guys that I speak to, especially in Europe, said there's still definitely more parties and more going on. Like, let's say 15 years ago, but for some of these guys, the money is better than ever. Yeah, but it, it's definitely it's the same uh, economic issue that every that the whole culture faces like you got the top one or two percent exactly taking all the gigs so it's like you, you got an a-list guy who's doing four or five gigs in a weekend pulling around you know let's say ten thousand plus dollars from each gig uh, more yeah. yeah and then um you know say there's just five of those guys in in central europe which is more but that's 20 gigs in a weekend and let's say uh, you know 300 400 grand that potentially doesn't trickle down to any of the other like middle ground dudes or even uh unheard of you know yeah so i guess that was my point i was trying to make earlier about okay the big guys that's like it doesn't actually help yeah anything i mean in in a way it's strange like uh obviously if it wasn't for people like richie or chris liebing or whatever uh, still playing these clubs and, and, and bringing it to a big level. Sven. I don't think there'd be people, there wouldn't be, you know, for example, I'm on Drumco, which is Adam Bear's label. Uh, mm. I, I don't do so much for it anymore, but I mean, like, I wouldn't have the career I have without yeah. the help of Adam and, and his constant touring and doing what he does. And then and, the, uh, you know, but then on yeah. the other hand, you know, uh, I think it's 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 tough for, for somebody in in the middle ground these days. 
And then, and then, you know, like talking about these, you know, the kind of the old school heavy heavy hitters like Derek and like Sven. So Sven Vaft, I first met Sven Vaft. There used to be this club, uh, Dorian Gray. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask you about that. I... <laughs> so, yeah, we've like one of the most mental gigs I've ever done. Like they, they so they, it was too big for the for the venue for the actual club Dorian Gray. Mm-hmm. So they moved the sound system out into the multi-story parking lot, mm-hmm. and they had like barriers at the front. This place there was like thousands of people there, and they like they flattened, like literally bent over the 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 rails, like the the security rails. It was a not so gig. Going back to Sven's, that and that's when I first met him. That was eighty nine, I think eighty nine, yeah. And then going back to his studio, and you know, so the thing is, like Sven, you know, as with all these people, hell, all these people, they're like, yeah. you know, there's questionable kind of personality traits, but they were there doing it, and. Musicians and artists, they have this though. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like you take the good with the bad. Exactly. That, so that doesn't make it to, acceptable, yeah. but it, that's what it is. That is all part of the kind of game that the whole thing is. It's like you know, and I think it's also there's a lot of idiots to to deal with too, especially in this dance music when people are drinking all night, taking yeah. some drugs, chatting yeah. in your ear. So it's like you know, honestly, most of my experiences with Sven, not that I've had a lot, but like. Super nice fucking guy. Like he's flipped the bill for dinners, things like that. Yeah, really sure. cool. But then you know you hear stories about like how so and so is a diva or whatever. And I'm like, I've seen both sides of these tokens, and it's just like, hey man, I have my moody moments too. That's you know? all. It, I mean, that's yeah, that's kind of it. But I, you know, we're 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 on the outside looking in. So there's the the thing is, it all becomes ultimately. It's you know it's a it's a package it's a it's you're selling a you know you're selling a club a nightclub you're selling a brand you're selling everything like yeah I mean in in the end I think I you know because a lot of people always I get questions uh, I take them for the show a lot people want to know what I think about this and actually I I don't really have such a negative outlook on a lot of it i try even when it comes to going to see music that i don't give two shits about i always try to find the good of it like because if you if you sit there and focus on the negative part it's gonna be yeah you know it's the half glass half full thing yeah i mean i think that ultimately that's the thing as well is like musically it's it's you know the only reason anyone gets you know professionally doing the circuit or whatever the the only time that it, things piss me off is when someone's a dick off stage or you know off yeah. performance like they get a taste of like everybody kissing your ass so like it becomes part of everyday life yeah and uh but i mean that's a thing like i've i'm pretty good at keeping those people out of my life yeah um, that's a good you know good solution i would probably have a little bit more money in my pocket or more fame if i associate yeah. with those people but i'm pretty happy dude otherwise so yeah, and the only thing that really upsets me is I have no problem that with anybody that wants to just kind of be a touring DJ or mm. band and like not really. It just bums me out that like when you achieve a certain level and there's literally nothing more you can do. Like you've done your club night in Ibiza, you've done uh, an amazing record label, you got this historic career, 
at that point, I guess maybe because I'm still primarily a musician first, I'm like, where, why don't you have this cool new project or do an interesting collaboration? Actually, or, yeah. You yeah, know what I mean? Right. Like, why does the legacy have to end when yeah. you're uh, 30 rather than, you know, when yeah. you're 45 or something Milking like that? Milking it on something that is going to, you know, at some point it's going to run out. You know? Totally. But um, I know Brian's coming in soon, and I wanted to... Talking about assholes. Yeah, what a gigantic asshole. Dick. No. But um, <laughs> I want to go into real briefly, because you, you brought up a lot that you're in the film industry. Mm. Um, let's chat about that for a minute, because I'm kind of curious. I don't really know... Pe- I mean, I know a few people in the industry, but not like that are working on a day-to-day. Do you just have an interest in film that... You kind of decided. Yeah, did you? It, well, it kind of, it, like I said, it was born out of. Um, it was born out of doing the design. <laughs> the the work it, at, being at university doing a design degree and kind of realizing that it probably wasn't enough to sustain my interest and definitely wasn't going to be enough to. You talking graphic design? Yeah, or? graphic design. Yeah. So I, um, so then I started moving into film. I mean, it was at the time where every like everything was definitely switching over to just being like you didn't need a designer; you could just do it. I yeah. mean, badly in my opinion, but you, yeah. Hey, there's a lot of bad design that gets uh, that makes a lot of money these days. It's, it's very true. So now I started. Yeah, I've always had an interest in film, so I started working in that as as a, like a initially just doing like shorts and you know the same thing everyone does and then directed a few things uh had a little uh design company that did a few like restaurants and do all this kind of crap in london um made a few ads for like mtv and for hewlett packard all this kind of you know just like scratching in Mm-hmm. And it's tiring. It was really tiring. So um, that like that time when um, Terence contacted or us w- w- got together was kind of a, it was a it was a perfect time for me to reevaluate how much I really want to work on being in film, being mm-hmm. in design, or take the easy route and go back to doing music. Yeah. Which I did, but then subsequently, I mean, I never stopped doing film. And then my wife, Hazel Hill McCarthy the third, is her full name. That's a long name. Yeah, because she's the hi. If you're listening, third wife. She actually is her name. When are you gonna learn your lesson, man? Yeah, well, I'm too old to change now. My sister just got married. Yeah, I, you know, it's her first time. Let's hope it stays oh, that way. What's her name? I'm not going to say on the air because people end up Facebooking them and wanting to be friends and all that oh, shit. Well, but anyway, that's good. Good that's luck good to she you. Got Did you go to the wedding? Yeah, it was nice. out in Virginia Beach, so I got a little beach time. That's the thing. Last week I was I was gone for four days. You look like you got a nice little. Tip. Yeah, that's right. I got something going on. Um, <laughs> so I went out there, did a little beach action, did the wedding. I flew back Tuesday. I arrived Tuesday afternoon. Tuesday night I went into the studio for this intense week long studio collaboration thing. Ended it last night. Nice. And now we're sitting here at the table today. Here we are. I'm pretty exhausted. You know, I didn't even really have time to prep for today's interviews, but it's like I knew, you know, your history. I've known Brian for years, so I'm just like, well, fuck you, it. Let's, I mean, it, 
We'll you drink until it's interesting, otherwise. Exactly, yeah. And you know I'm a complete fucking bullshitter, so you, that's going to be... Well, it takes one to know one, so that's why we're sitting here. No. <laughs> but, but back to the film, film thing. Yeah. Then, yeah, so then um, so then my wife, um, she she's also got a graphic design background and film background, and uh, she had a gallery. She had an art gallery in Los Angeles called uh, White... Uh, no, sorry... Uh, show cave she also had another event space that was like an after hours event space called white slave trade that went on for it's like a you know after hours thing that okay was pretty raucous so I, I actually i didn't know when i first went to it and then we ended up moving in or i moved into the apartment above her um in los angeles in uh in silver lake and okay. uh yeah, so it was a it was a hard hard part of my life, and I was bouncing around a little bit, and so she would listen with her roommate to the girls that I was bringing back to. Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> she's like, "All right, I got to get to know this guy." <laughs> I don't remember any of this, but apparently, according to her, then she, they could, you know, I mean, it's a shitty LA apartment. Hey, I'm living in an apartment building now. There are things that are heard at 2 a.m. in this building. And so she would like hear like, "Mm, it's getting hot in here. (laughs) Go knock on the door. (laughs) Take your top off. And then, yeah. And now you're married. I remember none of this. Yeah. Now we're married. And then she, yeah, so Hazel Hazel designed um, uh, a book for Genesis... Briar Peorage yep. from from Ingrissel. Yep. Um, called the Psychic Bible. Um, and it was originally released in the eighties, I think, as a kind of like paperback edition. And now this was like this. It's kind of like the writings of Genesis Peorage. It's five hundred and seventy pages. And now you can get it at Urban Outfitters. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But it's uh, yeah. So this. It she she worked on this book with Jen, um, and um, then to kind of celebrate once they'd published it, like comes it's a beautiful book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a hardback edition. It was a edition of nine hundred and ninety nine. Okay, I think we have that edition. But a- anyway, um, and then it's been republished various times as a paperback, and then Hazel and Genesis went out to. Uh, to Nepal to kind of celebrate Nepal finishing. of all places. Yeah. Okay. Kathmandu, which was great, but it also coincided with my dad dying of cancer and asbestosis. So I stayed in England and then I met her in, in India. And then we did this mad what, trip. When was this roughly? It's like uh, five years ago. Six. Oh, so relatively recent. Yeah. Then. Okay. Yeah, five, six years ago. Yeah, five years ago, I think. Yeah, so then, so we did this mad trip of just traveling around India, and I did this, like, fucking crazy thing. I brought the sheet that my dad died in with me to India. I'm not religious whatsoever, but then we were we made it to Varanasi, and I Hazel lit a candle, and I wrapped this... Uh, blanket in a photo uh, wrapped the blanket around a photo of my dad and we put it into the ganges and did this like weirdly spiritual thing that 
you know. Uh, man, I totally get it. When my stepdad died, because uh, he has he was part uh, Native American and he was had really close ties, so we did the whole Native American funeral thing. It was fucking wild. It you know, may, like it makes you feel like a release for sure. It's a closure. You know, I've yeah, been to totally a, that. Sadly, uh, where I come from, a lot of people like to commit suicide. So I've been to a lot of funerals before I even graduated school. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you what, these like uh, Christian funerals are fucking depressing. Horrible. You know, they're Horrible. crying and then you can start drinking and then you cry again and you tell some jokes and you cry. And like when, of course, this was sad with the the funeral, the Native American funeral, but it was like so everything about it was interesting. Like I didn't feel shitty when I left. You know what I mean? It felt I, like a good... Exactly, yeah. And uh, so, you know, you talking about this, it reminds me of that, like all these interesting ways of saying goodbye. Were you they, know? so on the, on the, the Ghats on the, in, in, in Varanasi, it's like Varanasi is, is the, is the, is supposedly for Hindus is the, is the point where heaven and earth meets. Mm-hmm. So there's this continual fire that they burn, you know, they do the burning on the side there. S- same, same with this funeral. Go yeah. on. And so we, yeah, we did, we did that. It's all fucking, I mean, it really did actually help me a lot. Definitely was, uh, I'd, I'd brought some of my dad's, um, liquid morphine with me that he would That'll do it. <laughs> so that helped a lot. All we had was weed at ours, but you know. <laughs> so anyway, on this, so Hazel just left, like literally she'd left England because we basically, we, up sticks came back from LA and went to live with my parents to help my mom. And then my dad's, you know, going, he's dying. He's in the last, I don't know if you've heard of this terminal madness expression. No. So terminal madness is where the person, it like, it's a, it's just kind of psychosis. The person knows they're dying and then just is, like kind of in this, like they become like super human. So my dad, who like couldn't get out of bed, would get up and like start trying to change light bulbs and do this weird shit. I had to hold him down at one point. Yeah, I I I know what you're talking about. I I I saw a good bit of that last year. Yeah, it's, it's a, fucked up. It's a fucking incredible. Like literally, I'm holding my dad, who's that point. He's probably like 80 pounds. Like the dude was huge. Was uh, growing up, like yeah, you know, big hands, big muscly guy, and he'd gone down to nothing. But he was like lifting me up off the ground. I'm just like trying to hold him mm. down. Kind of crazy, but uh, yeah. So Hazel went from that to then going out to Nepal to Kathmandu with Genesis by Peorage, which you listeners should look up. Yeah, if, if you're not aware of Genesis Peorage, <laughs> uh, first of all, don't do it at work. Second of all, crazy <laughs> fucking dude. Completely nuts. Completely fucking crazy. Lovable, but bananas. So, yeah, so uh, Jen was like, yeah, definitely doing few things in Kamandu, Kataman, I think mainly. Um and then fell over in the hotel lobby mm-hmm. and like bashed her head. Genesis likes to refer to Genesis as her. Yeah. Um so then Hazel had this idea of like, you know, they're in the hospital, they're in the emergency room, whatever, and she's like, look, get through this. I've I just read this 
piece in the newspaper about voodoo in West Africa. If you get through this, I'll take you to West Africa and we'll 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 find out what voodoo's all about. What the fuck? I'm in. <laughs> so <laughs> so then he's you know, so Jen survives um and it's completely fine. It's very scary for everyone. Uh but yeah, then so Hazel Hazel takes Genesis to Benin, West Africa. Um with Genesis, I'm along as like sound and cameraman and producer. Um we ended up going twice over this period of time. It took about a year to film um and then two years to edit which i edited with hazel and then me and cyrus rex have done the music and yeah it's a pretty awesome film so we're screening actually in uh we just screened in tel aviv uh london and uh new york and we're coming back i think in february and what's it called bite of the twin okay after get a link afterwards um or whatever information, so yeah. you can go to the website and uh, it's incredible. Find out anything about it. <laughs> and um, are you going to do a show in Berlin at all? Or um, we're going to do it in February. Um, the uh, God damn it, I'll have to. There's something going on. There's a festival. There's a festival that happens in. It's not the Biennale. It's um, God. it's one of those things. It's anyway, one of those things is that. But oh, so I mean, I love Tel Aviv, but why Tel Aviv? Um, they offered to show, so I did. That's a, a pretty good reason. Yeah, I did a I did a DJ set mm. the night before, and then we showed it there. I love Tel Aviv. I actually do. I Man, mean, it's I amazing. Politically, the yeah, okay. politically, it's a. I I just don't want to enter into it. So that's, uh, Brian that's Brian. Black. I'm gonna go get that real quick. But you can keep telling them why it's awesome. All right, or I could pee. Yeah, I pissed like I hated porcelain, so <laughs> it's all good. Anyway, uh, before Brian got here, we were talking about Tel Aviv and why it's awesome. Yeah, Tel Aviv is it's an interesting thing because, you know, I mean, I'm a pretty uh, liberal-minded fella, and uh, there's a lot of things that upset me about the state of Israel, the state of what's going on in the Middle East, but mm-hmm. God damn it. You get to Tel Aviv, and it's 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 a country within a country. Like they're, they're, yeah, it's it's completely different from being in the rest of of Israel. Yeah, and I mean the thing is, is it? Listen, it's got its uh, it's got its issues, just as any country. But there's warm people there. God, so warm. great yeah. culture, good food. food. Oh my god, the food is incredible. Hummus. I mean, I, we we've spoke about Israel a bunch of times on this show. Hummus. Yeah, down, it's amazing. Just go and it's all eat good. hummus for lunch, like yeah. a, it's like soup. Yeah, I, I actually one of the upcoming episodes is I have one of the the main groups and clubs from Avedon, uh, well, Avedon but there's like mm. three or four of these guys from Israel that are kind of doing things, and uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to having them on the show and kind of saying That'll like this is what they're up to. Yeah, you know. Some shit's fucked up, but this is also the other way of seeing it. You know I mean, what I mean? Exactly. So. I mean, that's the thing. And, it, you know, like when you – it kind of – it does actually piss me off, the, you know, when people are like, well, fuck Israel, fuck all this. And it's like, dude. 
I mean, it, yeah. Look at America. Look at yeah. England. Look at. You're always going to have, there's France, always going to be extremists, yeah. and then there's going to yeah. be people in the middle, and then you got people who are like, fuck all of that, you know? I mean, and it's, no a tiny, it's a tiny country, and the city of Tel Aviv is, is like I just said, it's like a country within a country, and the same as like, you know, if you go to south, the southwest of the United States, until you get to Los Angeles, yeah. everything is just not that cool. Like politically, oh yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of great things about the South, but there's obviously. also the, you know they're still flying the Confederate flag out east yeah, and everything, it's, and it's it's ridiculous. But uh, we'll we'll start wrapping it up here just because right. we have been going on a while, and I guess you're gonna sit <laughs> like in with two us. Hours. <laughs> yeah, but that's how this show goes. Um, let's plug some shit. You got any upcoming shows or releases or anything that people need to know about? Uh, it depends when this is coming out. This week or next week. All right. Uh, well, if it's this week, then I play Budapest with uh, Terrence on Saturday night. Me and Terrence have got stuff coming out. We've got a new track called uh, Chemicals. Um, it's pretty hardcore, like raw, old school kind of, I guess, EBM. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it definitely goes back to my roots. as it's, it's peak energy kind of stuff. Very much so, yeah. Cool. And it, it fits in with uh, with with Terence's beginnings as well. Okay, perfect. Um, and what's that coming out on? Uh, Planet <laughs> Rouge, or are you still? In- we're not decided. Adam X wants to put it out, so we're just like, I mean, we literally, it's like this is how conversations go yeah. about how to release a record. It's like, should we do it or should we do it? On- These days, I mean, everybody's kind of releasing their own stuff, you know? Yeah, it's so, like, what are you going to do? It's like, yeah. I don't know. So Adam's really excited about it, so. I know he's a friend of the show. Yeah, I'm, I want to have him back on. He's always entertaining. Adam. Yeah. Hello, Adam. But uh, and then uh, is that it for the U, uh, EU tour then? Or yeah, well, um, yeah. Then I go back to LA. I'll carry on working on Black Line. Um, there's the I guess the next things. The main next things I'm going to come back to Europe for the wife's um, screening of By the Twin. Okay. Cool, and I'll see you then. I'm sure as well. Yes, you will. Um, also, like I said earlier, you got the the collaboration rough with uh, Rafaela Tanasio. I have no clue when that's coming out. Do you? I have no clue when that's coming out. Keep an eye on that, and then someday this album with uh, Drum Cell and Luis Flores. Exactly, there's that. Yeah, yeah. yeah but, I think next year is going to be. There'll probably be a bunch of releases and fun stuff. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for coming over, man. Thanks, man. Have a good one. Seriously, it's a really good time. Awesome. All right, take it easy. <laughs>